Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. Radio BX is a natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, and I'll be talking with leaders who are driving positive change across the country and abroad. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio BX. It's May 14th, 2020. I'm Yatza Frank with the Building Energy Exchange, and I have the very special privilege today of talking with my partner in life these last 25 years. Uh, it's not, a, not an honor you usually get at work. Um, usually when you introduce someone with the same last name, you have to note that there is no relation, uh, but in this case, the opposite is true. Uh, my one promise to our listeners is that this conversation will not devolve into an argument about whose parents were visiting at the holidays or, or whose turn it is to, to walk the dogs. Our guest is doing way too much amazing work uh, to spend any time on that stuff. Uh, Joanna Frank is the president and CEO of the Center for Active Design. She was trained as an architect and co-founded what was at the time probably the only all-woman-led real estate development firm in New York City. Uh, has run uh, programs at both the New York City Economic Development Corporation and the New York City Department of Design and Construction, both across uh, the Bloomberg administration. She and her team at the Center for Active Design have built it into perhaps the leading voice on how the design of the built environment impacts our physical, mental, and social health. And for the past few years, uh, they have administered FitWell. Uh, the research-based healthy building certification system uh, originally developed uh, by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and the U.S. General Services Administration. Fitwell's gained remarkable traction across uh, the building industry, um, both nationally and globally, and is being used uh, by a kind of who's who of every major real estate uh, ownership and investment firm out there. As a result, uh, Joanna is regularly asked to speak at events all across the globe. So even though we are quarantined in the same house. I was astonished that I was able to carve an hour out of her schedule for this interview. Uh, Joanna Frank, welcome to Radio BX. Thank you very much. Um, you lead the team at the Center for Active Design, but I would hazard that lots of the folks that, are, that know your name know it through your advocacy around the Fitwell Healthy Building Certification System. So I think it would be illuminating for lots, lots of our listeners if you could sort of provide a brief history of the Center for Active Design and then sort of what FitWell is and the center's role in sort of administering the standard. Sure, absolutely. Um, so our home is New York City, um, and actually the Center for Active Design was launched out of the end of the Bloomberg administration. So during the Bloomberg administration, a new program started called Active Design. Um, and Active Design was pretty much groundbreaking in that it looked at how do you translate public health research and data into really practical, implementable design strategies that could then be used in New York City's portfolio of buildings. So public buildings, public space, infrastructure investment, but also housing as well, especially affordable housing. Um, so we were doing that work, working with multiple agencies, translating this evidence base about a decade ago. Um, and active design at the time was really just looking at how to increase physical activity, because that's where the evidence base was really the deepest for, for um, coming out of public health. Um, and then the Center for Active Design was launched because New York City got a lot of publicity for the work they were doing. Um, those of you who know New York uh, know that it's changed quite fundamentally. And a lot of that is because of this emphasis really on optimizing the city for people 
rather than cars or any other uh, facet of the city. Um, so other cities wanted to replicate it. The private real estate industry wanted to replicate this approach, this kind of evidence-based approach. So we started the Center Actor Design uh, about eight years ago now. Um, and we really continued to gather that evidence base um, from global, the global sources, so institutions around the world, academic institutions around the world. Um, and what's happened is the evidence base has really um, expanded. So we now know uh, how our built environment actually impacts all aspects of our health. So yes, our physical health, but also our mental health and also social health, so trust social interaction and so on, um, is actually all affected by our built environment. So as that evidence base is expanded, our work has expanded and we've put out lots of new publications. Um, we've worked with lots of different folks, private real estate, like the Urban Land Institute. We put out an assembly that we're gonna talk about a little bit more, looking at public space um, and then Fitwell. So Fitwell came along, we were uh, awarded the contract. We were uh, chosen to run Fitwell three years ago by the CDC. Um, and Fitwell has kind of been a game changer and that it took our work from pretty small scale and working with specific uh, companies or specific cities um, to really just scaling it, like putting that evidence base out there for everybody to see, for everybody to use, translating it into um, a format that was really kind of designed for, for large scale adoption. And that is what happened. <laughs> um, so it's nice when, when your plans go, <laughs> go well. So that was good. Um, tell tell us a little bit more about assembly. Um, there's a lot of really interesting correlations and and in that document, and some of them are rather sort of counterintuitive, and for me were really eye opening when I first read through it. Sure. So assembly is kind of taking where the public health research base um, ends, which is really kind of that social health. So social health is about social cohesion and trust, um, but kind of from a health perspective. And it was really expanding the conversation to one of what we call civic life. Um, so looking, yes, at trust. So that is the kind of the overlap with the public health work, but then also looking at how does the design and maintenance, very importantly, how does that affect our willingness to participate in public life? Understanding and what we could see from the evidence base was it's really important for us to uh, interact with one another. Social isolation is very bad for us. So we can talk more about that in the context of COVID-19 in a second. But so how do you create um, public spaces uh, shared experiences that really welcome everybody in that feel like they are for you rather than for someone else, which is a big, big deal in the kind of public space world. Um, and then also like, how does that affect other aspects of health and civic engagement? So the kind of the, the ladder of engagement that we talk about with, with assembly is first of all, how does your built environment affect your levels of trust, which is it's fascinating. We could spend the whole hour talking about that. Um, and it's obviously very pertinent, um, but then also, so participation in public life and then stewardship of the public realm is kind of the next level up. Um, so stewardship would be the difference between what cues in your environment are either causing you to pick up that trash that you feel responsible for that space or that you're dropping trash because you feel no sense of, you know, kind of that you need to maintain it or that or ownership. And there are definitely cues in our, in the design and maintenance of our environment that, that actually impact that behavior. And then lastly, kind of the highest level of that engagement would be 
um, one of agency and participation in um, our civic processes. So that doesn't just have to be elections, but being part of school boards or being part of a collective action around cleaning up a park or anything kind of that is for the collective good. Um, and that's kind of the hardest one to impact with design. Um, but there are some aspects of your neighborhood that do actually inform that. Um, and agency is really important because if you feel like you have agency over your life, um, it means you feel like you have control over the outcomes of your life. Um, and if you don't feel like you have agency, there's a very negative consequences. It affects um, not just your health outcomes, but it also affects educational outcomes and economic outcomes as well. Um, so agency is something that we care yeah. a lot about. Um, and we see that it permeates across all um, social determinants of health. Yeah, I definitely recommend people check out Assembly. There's a lot of really, really interesting content in there. One of the things that was really interesting to me was the degree to which some of these issues kind of leap across uh, across what you would consider maybe barriers. So if you're, if a vacant lot is not regularly cleaned up or there's a lot of trash in your neighborhood, it decreases your trust actually in the police force, even though that's not their job, like there's some connection there between, you know. So that kind of thing is really, really interesting and so critical for us to sort of understand, especially as we're all kind of re-envisioning what, what cities are like, what public spaces are like now um, in this particular age. Moving on, uh, I guess, to fit well, I think a lot of listeners may not may not be aware of the degree to which the standard is sort of based uh, very strictly on peer-reviewed research, uh, and there's a kind of systematic ranking of that research in terms of its robustness, how much it impacts the, the issues at hand, um, and so if you could kind of describe that sort of backbone of fit well, like how it's, how it's structured and how you kind of determine in this kind of point-based system uh, the impacts these moves will have, these strategies will have on human health writ large. Absolutely. So, I mean, Fitwell was created originally by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is a you know, pretty good research partner. Um, so what they did is they actually spent five years gathering, doing a literature review, um, gathering 3,000, more than 3,000 peer-reviewed research studies um, all of which was specifically looking at the connection between an aspect of design of the built environment and an aspect of health. So Fitwell looks at health in a holistic way. It's looking at um, community health. So even in buildings, it's looking at the community's health at large. Um, it's looking at uh, equity <laughs> for vulnerable populations. There's a, there's a subject that we can dive into. Um, it's certainly looking at mitigating morbidity, um, so looking at underlying risk factors for chronic disease and infectious disease. Um, it's looking at access to healthy food, safety, physical activity, um, and lastly, mental health, all aspects of mental health. Um, so every strategy within Fitwell has a measurable impact on one of those um, outcomes, health outcomes. And many of the strategies have an impact on multiple outcomes. So let's just take walkable communities, something that I think everybody in, can imagine what a walkable community is. So a walkable community doesn't just impact uh, the amount of physical activity that you're getting. It actually also impacts your mental health. Um, and it actually also impacts the community's health as an equity issue as well. So this one design strategy it's a big one admittedly um, it has multiple impacts on health because your health is very much interconnected um, so kind of the evidence base is is substantial at this point so since we received the um, license to run fitwell three years ago we have actually redone the literature review and 
we now have more than 5,600 peer-reviewed research studies behind the FitWell standard. Um, and then there's an algorithm behind FitWell, um, and it's looking at two variables. It's looking at what is the strength of the body of research, and then what is the measurable impact on health? And those are the two pieces of information that are then driving the number of points you get for each of the strategies. So it's a weighted system so that you can really understand now, oh, putting blinds in my building has less of an impact on health, measurable impact on health than the location of my building, for instance. I mean, perhaps that's obvious, but now you can kind of quantify that. Yeah. Um, the strategy in Fitwell, it's on the commercial side that has the largest number of points is actually supporting uh, lactation rooms. Um, and that is because the evidence base is so strong and the impacts are so multifaceted. So it's impacting the mother's health, it's impacting mental health, it's impacting the child's health. You know, it's like yeah. this, this kind of um, collective impact. So, so that's the way that Fitwell works. And because of that weighted um, the weighted point system, it means that you don't have to have, we do not have pre prerequisites. And that's really important because we don't want to use Fitwell to set a bar and only those who go over the bar can use Fitwell, right? So the whole idea about Fitwell is that it can be used across all existing or new projects and that everybody can actually benefit from this information and use it to inform an incremental uh, approach to change and not just a kind of uh, awarding of gold stars to those who ace it um, yeah. because in order to affect public health you've got to actually lift everybody up um, and i think that we've just we've just had a real demonstration in inequity <laughs> yeah, sure i mean the lactation room example is is a, a great example of of the application of sort of quantitative data to something that would have been considered entirely qualitative previously. Oh, that would be yes. nice to have, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Oh, actually, <laughs> it has these direct and measurable impacts, which is really huge to kind of shift people's thinking around these various strategies within, within buildings. So with something like Fitwell, you need to engage with a huge array of different stakeholders. I mean, one of the challenges of our industry is just the diversity of decision makers, right? You have very technical people like engineers. You have non-technical real estate professionals with tons of experience, but in their specific silo. Um, how do you as an organization um, sort of engage directly with those different actors in the space? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think that we, we know from our own experience um, that we really need to uh, be able to talk about uh, fit well, talk about health, as it is, uh, as it applies specifically to the job or the business um, that that who of whom we're talking to, right? So, if I'm a real estate developer, um, my fiduciary responsibility is to actually maximize the return on investment for my project. So, how does promoting health actually help you reach that goal? So, really important that we're savvy in that, that we can speak that language, that we can make the argument no. that is going to rep that. And if it's if it's a city, we need to be able to resonate with the political priorities of the city. If it's an architecture firm, we need to understand that they are looking to work with their clients, meet their clients' needs, and offer services. So, it's really important that that we understand the differences of why people are engaging with us and speak directly to that. So, we do. We do kind of have different programs. So for the real estate owners and operators and investors, uh, we have what we call a Fitwell Champion program, 
um, which is really looking at how do you use Fitwell at scale across your portfolio of buildings, um, right. and then how do we recognize the companies that are that are making that commitment and lift them up because it's important for market differentiation. So that's the kind of that's the the way that Fitwell engages with with the owners of properties, um, and then for the professionals who are using Fitwell and working with clients to use Fitwell, we have um, similar to kind of a lead AP. We have the Fitwell Ambassador Program which is really looking at how do we provide professional training so that the, the A&E community can really work with their clients in a way that they are informed and that they are the expert in the subject um, and can speak to their clients about you know, how it will benefit their clients to really be thinking about prioritizing health. Um, and of course, all of this has changed in the last three months. Um, but to give them the language and to give them the tools to be able to promote health um, as a priority for a project. Um, so we have the ambassador program. Um, we also have a very new program, which isn't launched yet. It's still kind of in its nascent stage called the affiliate program, which is really going to be again for the A&E firms so that they can um, get technical assistance and professional development at a company level so that they can really have that expertise. Mm, um, because you and I were like educated in architecture and we certainly weren't educated in the health impacts of architecture. And that is the right. case for probably 90% of the A&E community that health wasn't part of their education. So really important that we share our knowledge with, with the, the professionals who are working is as the intermediaries between us and their clients. So we really want to empower um, the, the professional um, folks and also the thirst for knowledge that we're hear, hearing from the A&E community is really um, I mean, it's great to hear that they're constantly like more, 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 right? Yeah. Tell us, tell us what you know. We want to know what you know. Um, and we're only too happy to share that. Well, that sector is always a great one to push knowledge sharing because they have, you know, architects and engineers have this sort of culture of continuous education that's required for their professional accreditations. Um, and so they have this sort of baked into the way that they think about their lives, their working lives. One of the challenges of working in other disciplines is that they don't necessarily have that. Um, and so that can be hard to sort of educate folks in those other spaces. So looking at the at sort of the big sectors that you work in, affordable housing, you have a, a strong partnership with Fannie Mae. Um, I'd be interested if you could kind of speak to that and, and how that how the Fitwell fits into the affordable housing market. Sure. Um, so when we started Fitwell, we were really aware because of our previous work with affordable housing in New York City, that we were concerned that Fitwell would be used for market rates and luxury properties um, because there was a, a relatively easy return on investment argument to be made in the private sector, the market rate sector, um, because the demand is there, people will pay more for this, etc. Um, we were really concerned that for the affordable properties, you know, it's not the same financial argument. Um, and that really what we needed to do was look at ways to make this a business case to the affordable housing developers um, so that this wasn't just another add-on to all the other things that they have to do, right? So they're already overstretched generally as far as the, the number of things that they're needing to, to deal with. Um, and the way that they finance the projects is way more complicated than a, than a market rate project, et cetera. So there's already a real level of complexity to affordable housing development. So we didn't want to add a burden to that, right? That wasn't, that didn't seem like it was going to be a way to um, increase use and thinking about health. So we, we partnered with Fannie Mae. Um, Fannie has a very successful green rewards program where they were actually offering developers who were meeting sustainability targets with all of these kind of um, 
financial incentives. So we were like, can we replicate what you, you, what you did for green, for sustainable, um, and can we, can we do that for health? And the answer was, yes, we can. It took four years, um, but we got there. Um, and so what we had to do there was we had to obviously work with the financial regulators and actually demonstrate that there was a measurable impact on health right. um, using these strategies so that this wasn't just a nice idea. <laughs> Um, but was actually something that could be measured. Um, so Fanny and us created the uh, Healthy Housing Rewards Program. Um, so Healthy Housing Rewards offers developers a 15 basis point reduction in their loan and covers the cost of the certification um, if they are FitWell certified. Um, and we've seen Jonathan Rose companies, who's obviously based in New York, uh, were the first to use this. Uh, they have a project down... Um, uh, outside Atlanta in Georgia, which they did with a local developer there, Columbia Residential, um, which was the first and that just opened relatively recently. And it was That's a preservation great. deal. Yeah, it's exciting. So it was an existing property that uh, Jonathan Rose and companies bought um, and preserved for affordable and then invested uh, quite substantially in the property um, wow. in order to meet the Fitwell certification. So it's a great project. A great great flagship. Yep. Yeah, it's really exciting to see that this is beginning to get some traction um, and we hope that it will get a lot more traction because yeah. we know, and now everybody else knows, <laughs> that there are huge disparities in the health of the population. Um, and we see that also in the disparity about built environments as well. So uh, housing conditions and, and access to open space and all of this kind of stuff that, that we advocate for, um, the same disparities you see in health outcomes, you see in the quality of and access to these uh, amenities in the built environment. Yeah, equity is such a critical component there. Um, so, you I, I like I know that a lot of the you know companies that use uh, Fitwell are in the commercial office space. But you also uh, have you know other lots of other types of buildings using it, institutional, um, et cetera. But you also work directly with large investment firms. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those relationships and how that's sort of that's different from the way that many. Um, so we are seeing um, a lot of interest from institutional investors, um, which is exciting. So what we're seeing is a kind of this, this, this uh, almost a perfect storm. In fact, I think it is now a perfect storm with COVID-19 being added to the mix. So what we were seeing around health is that there was already this demand coming from individuals, um, that they wanted their workplaces, they wanted their homes to reflect the quality of life and the health and wellness um, aspects that they value. And this was already kind of definitely uh, impacting um, staff retention and attraction on a workplace side and it was affecting value on the residential side so you've got individuals demanding it at one side of the equation and then what we see now is and have done for the last couple of years is that um, investors global globally are looking for opportunities to invest in environmental social and governance um, investments so they're really looking for investments that can meet those environmental, social, and governance metrics. Um, and what's interesting from your world, which is E, <laughs> ESG. Right. So in the E world, in the environmental world, that's pretty well established as far as what the metrics are. And there's pretty high use of E as far as ESG metrics. Um, what is interesting is that the S is only using about 11% of, of uh, investments. So the S, which is where we live, which is the social, um, is the least used and the least understood and the least codified of the ESG metrics. So it's, someone said to me in the banking world that it's like the it's like the wild west of banking. So it's really just kind of a free for all. Define it as you like. Um, 
not really, we don't agree with that, but, <laughs> but that's what's happening. Um, so FitWell obviously squarely fits within um, the S, part of ESG. So you have uh, folks like Quadriel, who's a great partner to us. Quadriel is the real estate arm of the BCI uh, pension plan. So that's British Columbia up in Canada. So Quadriel uh, owns a lot of properties, big portfolio, fantastic partner, already a leader in sustainability. And yeah. basically they were like, all right, we're going to take on health in the same way that we take on sustainability. Um, so they are a great partner. Um, Chiovest, another Canadian company another with a, a pension plan. Um, um, another big kind of leader in sustainability are now also kind of adopting health and, and really promoting health and wellness through their through their investment opportunities. Um, Harrison Street, an equity provider, um, they have a lot of properties of senior properties, um, so senior assisted living properties, um, and they're working very closely with us as we develop uh, a new scorecard for senior assisted living properties. Oh, wow. um, so, yeah, so we're really seeing kind of this um, adoption from the investors, um, and that is obviously driving also the the decision making as far as the real estate development community is concerned as well. So. Sure. Sure. can imagine that having a huge impact. Um, so currently we're in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic and all that that entails. You all seem, your organization seems, you know, very uniquely positioned because your, your, your role is already kind of connecting the building industry to science and research so you seem really well positioned uh, to kind of help guide um, the industry moving forward. And your team is developing a series of guidance documents on what the research indicates we can do to ensure healthier environments. I think it's worth talking a little bit about each of those, but I, I first I'd like to understand sort of from you how they're being developed and who your partners are on that development. Sure, absolutely. So um, we, have, <laughs> we have heard <laughs> the real estate industry um, and their urgent requests for guidance, um, evidence-based guidance on how they should go about um, optimizing their properties um, for the residents, for the occupants, for their tenants. Um, on the residential side, obviously they are in the middle of this um, and have been since the beginning, um, as far as you know how to best work with the residents that they have. And then on the commercial side, how to ensure that their properties are ready um, when back to work is appropriate. And also not just physically how they're ready. So we can talk about, you know, how you can use buildings to mitigate viral transmission, which is the first chapter of the book that we just put out on Friday. Um, the second chapter is on building trust um, specifically for the workplace. So I think it's really important to understand that um, the COVID-19 has obviously been a devastating infectious, infectious disease. It, um, and that's an acute issue. It's a now issue. Um, but what you're going to see very quickly is that it's going to have a really dramatic impact on mental health as well. Right. We've seen this from any previous emergency, pandemic, epidemic, et cetera. It will take a toll on people's mental health. Um, and mental health was already, unfortunately, trending in the wrong direction anyway. Um, so social isolation is one of the key risk factors for premature death um, and was before COVID-19. So um, and we would imagine that's going to skyrocket. Um, so what we're doing is we're looking at the literature, we're putting the evidence base together. Um, Fitwell already covers a lot of the public health research, right? You know, 5,600 peer-reviewed research studies. Um, certainly there's a lot in there about many ways to, um, to optimize health generally and then specifically. I mean, we already had things like, obviously, the, the cleaning protocols, 
um, are already in Fitwell. Hand washing signs are already in Fitwell. It was always a good idea to wash your hands, right. <laughs> even before <laughs> COVID-19. And actually, I'm always telling fun facts in our household. Um, a fun fact is that less than 6% of the population approaches 20 seconds of hand washing. So we all needed a lesson in hand washing. Um, and what's interesting about the hand washing sign, I think it's a kind of an obvious. So hand washing is actually an evidence-based strategy, right? So it's not just a, oh, well, you know, someone just thought that was an easy thing to do. It actually does change behavior. To be reminded to wash your hands actually reminds us to wash our hands, and we, we are more likely to do so. So it's effective. Um, these kind of signs that we see everywhere are actually are effective in changing our behavior. Um, so... With the hand washing piece, what we saw, even though it's a really easy fit well strategy, right? It doesn't represent a big cost, like everybody should be doing it. Uh, less than 40% of the fit well certified commercial buildings were using that strategy, which is really interesting because the folks felt like, oh, I'm not, I shouldn't be telling my class A office tenants to wash their hands. Like that's kind of embarrassing, right? That's um, so, but now of course that's no longer a conversation that we need to have. Um, we also no longer need to say who the CDC is, which is another <laughs> another outcome of this COVID-19. Right. Um, so I think that, you know, it's, it's interesting. But what we found was with the resources that we're putting out specifically right now is that we really needed, we don't normally talk about infectious disease specifically. Um, it certainly goes into the kind of morbidity question, right? So life expectancy is absolutely impacted by infectious disease and chronic disease as well. So it's, it's in there, but it isn't called out. It isn't our kind of specialty. It's not our kind of area where we really focus our attention because quite frankly, it isn't the thing that kills the majority of people. That would be chronic disease. Um, and we're about how do you have the greatest impact on the greatest number of people. Um, so, so we wanted to kind of look at the literature about specifically to speak to infectious disease. Um, and then we wanted to really understand what do we know about COVID-19? So you can look at the, the research base around viruses generally. Um, and obviously right. there's like a hundred years actually of research around viruses um, and infectious disease. So we can look at that evidence base. So a lot of the strategies that we're recommending um, and that are in the publication are actually looking at SARS, they're looking at MERS, and they're looking at right. flu research. Right. So there's a certain body of information about like how do you mitigate the transmission of viruses generally, and then what is specific to COVID-19. So COVID-19 has specific characteristics that are different from those, um, and so then you know obviously that requires um, specific guidance. Um, and this guidance and the understanding is ongoing. So we also wanted to kind of preface this. We wouldn't normally put a book out in chapters, right? That's not how we roll normally. Um, and we usually wouldn't put out something when it has emerging evidence in it. We would usually only put something out when there is a body of evidence behind it. But we really felt like it was important to share that evolving research and the evolving evidence base, as long as we really kind of um, ensure that folks understand like this is the first study of its kind on COVID-19. So it is not a body right. of evidence, right? It is one research study. Um, you may see some contrary research studies. You've seen this, you know, we still don't know. We know now that some amount of COVID-19 becomes aerosolized. So there's three different ways that it's transmitted. Just go through the, the 101s of transmission. So it's person to person transmission. And that's kind of through the large, heavier droplets and that's through coughing and sneezing yeah. and they fall onto surfaces which brings in the whole cleaning protocols and they're also that's the that's the issue around um needing to minimize the kind of interaction that you have with people um so that's where the social distancing and ppe comes in 
That we know, right? It definitely transmits in those ways. It definitely transmits from services and from people to people. The aerosolized one is interesting in that some amounts of particles of the virus do become aerosolized, so they're very small and they float up. Um, but whether it's enough to be infectious, we don't know that. Um, so, so the recommendations from the WHO right now are that you should plan to mitigate the transmission of an aerosolized virus. So that's kind of where things stand today. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is, it's important to understand that, that that is, it's evolving, right? So nobody should be saying this is a panacea. I know how to, I can make my building uh, virus free <laughs> or right. virus, you know, like this isn't, this is about mitigating risk. It is not about eliminating yeah. risk. And I think it's important that building owners and operators understand that that's the case and that they don't oversell any one facet. So in this first chapter of these these guidance documents, the mitigating viral transmission in buildings, what are the major components that um, the research indicates buildings should be doing to mitigate that? Sure, so if we go to the person-to-person -person transmission, so that's kind of the primary transmission. Um, so that really is about where the kind of social distancing, that kind of expression has come up. Um, and that's really looking at how do you limit the interaction that you're having with other people? So you can limit that interaction, a physical interaction, with space, <laughs> with putting space between you and other people. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole host of ways that buildings are thinking about doing that, um, that the residential folks are already doing. Do, are you limiting the number of people in elevators at one time? Are you limiting the number of people in a lobby? How are you spacing people out? Are you moving circulation around a building in a single direction? Are you opening up stairwells? Hopefully you're opening up stairwells. We would like you to open up stairwells. Um, you know, all of these things are an effort to limit the interaction that you're having with other people. Um, and then obviously anybody who's at higher risk or can't actually maintain that social, that distance. Um, so cleaning crews would be a good example of that need to have PPE. So, yeah. and there's guidance and, and we very much rely on the CDC for guidance as far sure. as this is concerned. So sure. you'll see that in the publication. So this is not our, these are not our recommendations. These are us passing on the CDC's recommendations. Um, so that's kind of the person-to-person -person transmission. The next is person-to-surface. So person-to-surface would be, you know, when someone coughs and it drops down onto that surface or they cough on their hand and then they touch an elevator keypad. So that's the, that's the surface. So when you're talking about services, you're obviously talking about cleaning protocols. So cleaning protocols are going to be an essential piece of the puzzle here. Um, and that's, there's certainly a lot of guidance on what kills the virus. So we right. knew no different solutions, but I think what's really important in this context, especially with the sustainability uh, angle in mind um, is that a lot of the things that kill viruses are not very good for us either, especially when it comes to the um, air quality. So you really need to ensure that you are looking at both things, right? So yes, you can use a solution that kills a virus, but are you using a solution that, that puts so much noxious particles into the air that you're going to increase asthma rates or irritation or right. uh, other respiratory issues? So you really need to understand that. And again, the CDC has guidance on this. So, so cleaning, cleaning any high touch area. So that would be kitchens, bathrooms, obviously, um, elevators, a lot of folks are looking at uh, touchless elevators, all sorts of different ways to mitigate that touch. Um, but that's the kind of the surface um, issue. Um, and then the last is that aerosolized. So the aerosolized is interesting um, in that there's one, there's one key piece that we can do with our air conditioning systems, and that's around humidity. 
Um, and this is actually exciting because the humidity, this is what I get excited about, right? Um, <laughs> humidity affects both the large droplets and the aerosolized droplets. So humidity between 40 and 60% is actually where humans thrive and it is where the viruses have the hardest time surviving. So it's wonderful that Great. those yeah. two things actually come together in this way. So when you have very low humidity, not only does the virus survive better than us, but we are also irritated by that, by that dryness. Right. And so actually our respiratory tract is more susceptible to the virus. So it isn't just that the virus is more likely to survive in that, in that lower humidity, um, but it's also not good for us. And likewise, yeah. at the higher humidity as well, the, the yeah. virus is more likely to thrive. So humidity is great. Humidity works for both the droplets and the, and the aerosol. And then the other two key pieces on the aerosolized would be increasing filtration rates. Um, and again, the caveat there is you increase the filtration rate, you're going to increase the energy use. This is an age-old question yeah. on the lead versus health conversation that I'm not sure that we've figured it out yet. Um, but the, you can get up very high. You can get to like 95% um, elimination of transmission of viruses with, with very high rates of filtration. So that definitely works. Um, I, think, I do think the answer to the filtration question mm -hmm. about energy use is really related to the overall performance of your building. So if you have a really strong envelope uh, already and you have a really efficient uh, ventilation system that say is, has energy recovery embedded within it, um, then that's much less of an energy hit to move up the kind of MERV scale to get technical. Um, and so that seems like one of the big pieces of the question is people need to make their entire buildings higher performance uh, yeah. in order to respond to this issue. No, absolutely. And I think these are the kind of shifts that we're going to see in our building management is that we are going to really look at like, how do I optimize this environment for people? Yeah. Um, because I need to, because it's going to be required going forward. Yeah. And um, there's one other um, measure uh, that you were about to speak to that, 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 um, that impacts uh, aerosolized. Um, yeah, like increasing um, the amount of air. Um, the amount of outside air um, uh, coming yeah. into a system. More outside air into the system. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah because that dilutes and disperses yeah. any yeah. virus that is in the air. But again, that has an impact on energy use as well. Yeah, um, but it is, it's also interesting that it, it's one of those things that makes common sense once you hear it. <laughs> right? Like it's not, a, it's not a big sell to explain to people that the more you change the air through, the less, sure. you know. You could also um, open a window. That, that, I mean, you that know, that works. Too. That, um, that definitely works, actually. Yeah. Um, and a, all of these things are also applicable to, to your home as well. This is not just a commercial real estate conversation, yeah. right? This is also residential properties as well. Um, and so those are the kind of, those are the basics of the, um, those are your basics for viral yeah. transmission. Um, and so those are kind of the basic categories. And, and there's more information in the, in the chapter. You can just download it for free. Um, and then there are some emerging um strategies that I think um, yeah. we've started to kind of answer questions about um, as, as far as viral mitigation. So looking at kind of UV light, uh, bipolar ionization. Um, so those are kind of like, those appear to be um, effective, but then you need to weigh that also with are there any adverse consequences. So, so those are kind of areas that we are keeping an eye on. And there's a lot of research coming out literally every day. I mean, we are literally being um, the CDC sends us research that they've been made aware of um, and, and it's happening really fast. So, so it's really interesting and we are keeping abreast of this. I mean, we put the chapter out knowing it wasn't complete and just caveats everywhere. Like this is what we know today and we will keep telling you what we know because 
you need to know it now. You're making these decisions now. And right, I mean, we we understand that this is an evolving situation and that yeah, well, there's so it. much urgency around it. And you know, understanding what you don't know as well is is really, really important, almost as important as the things we do know right now. So getting mm-hmm. this type of knowledge sharing out there is really, really important. Um, mm-hmm. And I think everyone understands it's going to be evolving as it moves forward. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. I mean, I, I, I think it's really fascinating um, that uh, a lot of your work is focusing on trust. Um, and uh, and that, that's one of the sort of chapters that's coming out. Um, mental health as well. Um, density and resiliency uh, is another one of the chapters um, that's mm-hmm. coming. And then a chapter on equity. Um, and I, those are all going to be really, really fascinating to see as they as they sort of, sort of move forward. Are those as, it, it feels like those may not be as reliant on emerging research um, as, as the, the first chapter. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. No, this is definitely, I mean, the building trust piece um, is very much in our wheelhouse, right? I mean, we've been studying this for a long time. Um, I think what's evolving is how to take the research around what, what builds trust, what erodes trust, and make it applicable to the current situation. So, you know, kind of one of the one of the ways that building owners can really build trust with their tenants and employers can build trust with their employees um, is really kind of a plan, something as simple as a plan. Um, so having a preparedness plan, um, it needs to be specific, it needs to engage with your tenants or with the residents of your building. Um, as a tenant, you need to engage with your employees, like everybody needs to be part of that planning process um, so that we know lots of reasons. I mean, one, people are much more likely to follow the plan if they feel like they have been part of the development of that plan. Um, also, you don't know everything. No one person knows everything. Nobody knows anybody else's perspective, right? We can't assume that we understand that. So very important that you understand it from everybody's perspective. Um, I mean, and then some, so the planning piece is essential. It's actually a best practice for buildings, but it's also a best practice for mitigating um, infectious disease. So it's, it's interesting that this is where the worlds of public health and, and buildings really overlap completely is in the preparedness planning. And that goes for like, it doesn't just go for COVID-19, right? Having, yeah. having a really <laughs> uh, robust and um, it needs to be very specific, right? You can't just have a general plan. You actually need a really specific plan. You need to follow through each action all the way through to its log- logical conclusion. Um, I mean, a, a good example of this would be, we were asked this question just yesterday. Um, so you're saying that folks who are the cleaning crews within buildings need to be wearing PPE. How do you dispose? Are you giving guidance on disposing of that? Or is anyone right. thinking of that? And I say, yes, absolutely. You need to have figured out how do you dispose of that that. PPE separately so that it, it doesn't itself become you know, right. a contaminant and a source right. of issues. So it's, it's kind of, you need to think about all of those things because one thing that will erode trust very quickly is a lack of consistency, is uh, are signs also of like a deteriorated, um, any kind of deterioration in the building, in the area around the building. So yeah. trash, terrible for trust. Like you mentioned already, it affects trust in police. It certainly affects trust in authority figures. Yeah. Um, so trash is an extreme example, but it doesn't have to be trash. It can be a leaking pipe. It can be yeah. dust bunnies in the corner of the egress stair because no one ever goes in there. You know, like people are going to associate and it, it probably doesn't have to be true in order to erode trust that, oh, look, they're not cleaning the stairwell. Are they cleaning the bathrooms adequately? 
Um, and then the other thing that's really important is to why as building owners and, and as uh, kind of folks who have you know, cleaning crews or staff in the building that they all need to be aware of the plan and part of the plan, because again, they are your ambassador, right? They are the people who your yeah. residents are interacting with. If they don't know the plan, if they can't answer the questions about you know, how they're doing things, why they're doing things, then, then again, you're going to start to erode trust. So this stuff is pretty basic, but it's so important and we're all busy and everyone's stressed. And it's hard to think about it in its kind of in, in its complexity, but it, it is important um, and it will build trust and it will or erode trust. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of articles about the CDC's guidance at a sort of national and regional level on the importance of communication in a crisis and how, you know, states, cities, federal governments, uh, when you have one that functions, um, should be doing that communication and this strikes me as just a kind of building by building level version of the same thing that you really need to map out a plan about how you're communicating what's happening in each building in a very very clear way even if the things you're writing down seem perfectly obvious to you it's important for everybody to kind of know mm-hmm. one of the and you know one of the the cleaning crews uh example is really interesting because if that if it's not completely clear that your building management has all of this um, pulled together, you will go to work wondering whether they've told the cleaning crew that they need to be wearing PPE, that they need to, you know, that, that you will think that they might be uh, a problem if, if you don't know that the management company is really focusing on this. So this is, this kind of communication seems to me to be really, really important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, the, we kind of touched on mental health a little bit and building trust is obviously part of mental part health. Of that, so yeah. um, feeling safe, feeling secure, trust they're all they're all aspects of of our mental health obviously um and it's it's really important to kind of think about like after the sars uh epidemic 16 percent of the population that was surveyed after that had ptsd i mean like that's a very severe level of mental health distress and 40 percent of the population um had higher rates of stress anxiety and depressive symptoms so this is going to happen, right? We are going yeah. to have yeah. really significant um, impacts on our mental health. Um, and so I think that what is interesting as folks engaged in design and development, um, that we actually have a really strong role to play in supporting mental health. And I think this is kind of, to me, an optimistic thing to talk about in that we, there are certain things that we can do as building professionals to mitigate viral transmission. We are a part of the puzzle, but we can in no way eliminate right. you know, viruses from buildings, right? That's just not possible. Um, however, on the, on the mental health piece, we have a really significant role to play as people who shape the built environment because your built environment has a very significant impact on your mental health. So there's so much that we can do to support optimum mental health yep. in all at all times and now even more so so i think really understanding the role that buildings play and design plays in mental health um, is going to empower the um the a e community as they think about buildings the owners of buildings as they think about what to prioritize what to invest in um, yep. because they have a very strong role to play in in supporting mental health outcomes well that's a very optimistic note to maybe finish up on um uh, do you have, what is, I mean, I like to ask because we are in sort of uh, dark days, uh, 
uh, currently. I've been trying to end these episodes <laughs> asking the guests uh, that, in, you know, what in the midst of all of this is sort of giving you hope these days. Um, maybe it's that. Maybe it's our, our, the role we can play in this uh, moving forward. Yeah, I think where I find hope is actually where where the kind of the, the origination story of active design. So no one believed us <laughs> when we started active <laughs> design. Um, I mean, we would go around with our little book, banging it on everyone's tables, um, saying that we, as the building industry, um, have a role to play in mitigating um, the uh, risk factors behind chronic disease. And everybody was like, yeah. well, the health has nothing to do with me. I'm an architect, I'm an engineer, I'm a developer. <laughs> um, and we're like, no, 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 we absolutely do have a role to play here, guys. And the precedent that we used in order to convince people, and it actually convinced me, and it convinced David Burney, our board chair before me, the reason he was uh, kind of um, part of this right from the beginning with Dr. Frieden was because of this precedent. And the precedent yeah. is that New York City used its um, public spaces and its infrastructure and its policy to mitigate infectious disease in the 1800s. So the park system was created as what was called the working man's lung. It was specifically created to address infectious disease. The reservoir system and piping clean water into the city was to mitigate infectious disease. The Tenement Housing Act was yeah. one of the tools that was used to set design standards for housing to mitigate infectious disease, and it was successful. It went from the majority of the population dying of infectious disease to only 11% before the widespread use of antibiotics. Wow. So we have done this before, and they yeah. were big, bold ideas. They reshaped our city. Yeah. And we can do that again. Like we can reshape our city. I mean, right. we didn't even get onto discussing density and transportation. No, we didn't. We didn't. Um, but you know, we need these big, bold ideas because yeah. that is what is going to make cities and where we live—not just cities, everywhere that we live—optimize for people. We yeah. know how to optimize our buildings and our environments for people. Now, maybe at last, we will actually do it. That is an optimistic, mm -hmm. hopeful note to end on. Uh, Joanna, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Sure. Uh, you can learn more, all of our listeners, uh, about uh, the work of the Center for Active Design at centerforactivedesign.org and also at fitwell.org to learn specifically about that standard. Thanks to everyone listening today. We look forward to you joining future episodes of Radio BX. Joanna, thank you again. Um, everybody stay safe out there. Thank you. Thank you.